Good evening, all. Glad to have you here. I know a lot of you, but not all of you. I'm Scott Walters, the rector here at Calvary. What a joy to welcome you to uh, Waffle Shop After Dark or LPS After Dark, depending on what one, where one lays the emphasis. Um, it's a real joy to uh, have a fr an old friend, a relatively old friend, Diana Butler Bass, here to uh, speak tonight. We met... You know, in seminary, a lot of uh, relationships and roles get all muddled up. Because I kind of, we kind of, Ardell and I kind of knew Diana and Richard as Emma's mom. Because we both had these, these blonde girls at the Butterfly House at Virginia Theological Seminary, which is a little daycare over there running around. Now both of those little blonde girls are in college somehow. Um, we also attended the same church. Diana and Richard were at Church of the Epiphany down downtown, which is also where Amber served when she was in college. Interesting, there was a little Arkansas mafia there. You might not have known that, Diana. <laughs> I also, um, I was a carpenter in a previous life, so once upon a time, I got to install Ikea cabinets at Diana and Richard's house, just a few of them, and they served us dinner, and they felt sorry for a seminarian who needed a little spending money and passed that along to us. So, <laughs> so our paths have crossed in lots of, one more. Today, we were walking around the neighborhood in Evergreen, where we live in looking at Richard and Diana's old house, which is about two blocks from where Ardell and I bought a house in Memphis when we moved to Memphis. So our paths keep on crossing, and I'm glad for it. Um, Diana has been an important scholar, especially early on in my relationship with her, in mainline Christianity in America. In a time, it may be hard for you to believe this, when all the news was bad. <laughs> all the news was really bad about mainline Christianity, and Diana had this crazy idea that she'd seen parishes and congregations and communities of people who were actually thriving in spite of all of the bad news. They could be downtown in the city and actually have people coming to church. And she started telling those stories. And she's increasingly, in her research and her writing, gotten even more and more personal about the practice of being a person of faith in the world. Her last book is, her most recent book is Grateful, and she's going to talk about that tonight, The Subversive Practice of Giving Thanks. So we're going to pass around a, uh, a way for you to, if you'd like to, put your email address and get, what did you call your, this is a newsletter you yeah, do a couple times a month. Which, and that's actually my Okay. You can get in on Diana's Cottage if you just put your email address down here, but I'll pass that around. And without any, any more rambling, I'm going to welcome my friend Diana to speak tonight. Welcome. Oh my gosh. It's great to be here. Um, I'm sure there are some people in the room who remember that uh, 20 years ago I actually lived here. I taught for three years at Rhodes between 1997 and 2000, and it just so happened that my amazing daughter that Scott mentions being at the Butterfly House with his daughter was baptized on February 8th, 1998 uh, by Doug Bailey, right over there. And so um, I, I just, I, I walked in this room and I went, oh my gosh, I remember baptism day, all those good things. So it's a little like being home, and as he mentioned, uh, the house we lived on was an evergreen. We lived on Autumn Avenue, and I couldn't believe it when he took me over to his house, and it's like, it's right around the corner from my house. We were always meant to be neighbors, so um, it's good to be back. My husband asked me all kinds of questions as soon as I called him tonight about, well, what's so-and-so, and 
Do they, how, how's the mall downtown? And is the pyramid got anything in it now? So I had to catch him up on all the Memphis news. Anybody that has some like neighborly news that well, you need me to tell Richard, please, please let me know. Um, so tonight I get to be here and talk about my most recent book, a book called Grateful. This is the old title, which is actually kind of an interesting thing. The, the hardback was called The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. And as um, I went through this year talking about this book on the road with people, we began to wonder at the publishing house if that was the right subtitle. And so um, Harper Collins, is the publisher of this book, they hardly ever change titles because it's confusing. But they called me up and they said, we're gonna change the subtitle. And I said, well, what should we change it to? And they said, they, they came up with this idea of the subversive practice of giving thanks. And as soon as they said that, I went, yes. That's exactly what people have been saying all year. Because gratitude does change things around. It is very transformative. But even more than that, it is subversive. And uh, I hope that uh, you catch some of the sense of that uh, tonight as, as I share about Grateful. This is actually my 10th book. Uh, 20 years ago when I was here, I had written only one book. That was my doctoral dissertation. And so I've been writing a lot since I was gone. And um, most of that writing, as Scott already has mentioned, an awful lot of it, at least my first several books, were about how mainline congregations can do what we do better. Um, and over the years, I've been writing more about spiritual practices. I wrote a book about uh, what I, you might want to call environmental spirituality, a book called Grounded, and uh, now uh, this book called Grateful. I think that my next book, which I'm just beginning the project, is going to be called Keeping Faith, a book about belief for skeptics, doubters, and people tempted to give it all up. So, so that's kind of, it's been an interesting journey. And uh, this book is certainly a book that I never anticipated writing. My earlier books were all books that were written out of a sense of my expertise, being a religious studies professor, having a PhD in church history and theology, uh, being very well versed um, and things like organizational development and how we live together in community. So when I came to my previous books, it was like, yes, I got this, no problem. Um, this book developed entirely differently. And I, I, I don't know if any of you will relate to this, but um, the idea began occurring uh, to me to write a book about gratitude when I was in my late 50s, which was just a couple weeks ago, because I just turned 60. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was thinking about this about two, three years ago. And um, a couple of friends of mine, one of whom, well, two of whom you know, uh, Marcus Borg and Phyllis Tickle, both of whom had become very good friends of mine in the last uh, couple decades. And they both passed away in the same year. And I know that here at Calvary, that was probably about as heartbreaking as it was for me, um, living in Northern Virginia, where I live now. And I was thinking about Phyllis and Marcus and how they were actually very different people um, in interesting ways. Uh, 
quirky, interesting, remarkable personalities with their own gifts and the stories that they told. But as I thought about them and all the things that they had given me with such generosity through the years, I realized that one of the things they shared is that they were both deeply grateful people. Um, I, I couldn't even list the number of times that I heard Marcus talk about how his life was such a surprise and that he felt that he had been given this amazing gift. And uh, Phyllis was just that way, you know. Phyllis was always Phyllis, full of that joy of life that comes from living a deep life of gratitude. So I thought about that and their, their friendship, and I realized that, yikes, I was getting ready to turn 60, and I wondered if people after I die would say the same thing about me that I had noticed about Marcus and Phyllis. And once in a while, you have that moment and you look at the mirror and you say, no. And isn't that what Lent is often about? Is that really truly honest reflection that we need about our own lives. And so that was that moment that I stood back and I said, oh my gosh, I, I don't think anyone would say this about me after I die. And that makes me really sad and I wanna do better. And I had no idea that that was going to become a book. I just literally thought it was something I had to do. And so not writing a book out of expertise, but this book really comes out of the last three years of an experience of trying to live a different way. And uh, those of you who are younger, I hope you find some encouragement about that uh, because we always can change. We always can make course corrections. And those of you who might be my age are probably saying, yeah, I've had that moment too. And those of you who are maybe a little bit older are saying, oh, I remember when. Or I'm still working on. And so life is always a journey and there's always some sort of practice, some sort of way that the path in front of us is opening up to be more um, than we currently are. And so Grateful became that for me. It became a very deeply personal book and um, I started thinking about it in November of 2015. Uh, you can, see, oh gosh, it's cut off of this one. Right down there it says that this chart is from November 2015. Um, uh, so I was thinking about it in late fall 2015 when I was reading the Washington Post one day and uh, they had a story. You know, here it is a few weeks before Thanksgiving. And the story was about gratitude and American attitudes about gratitude. And uh, it was from the Pew Research Center. This was a question on a much bigger, actually, Pew survey. Uh, but they pulled the gratitude question out as kind of a Thanksgiving sort of, uh, you know, interest story. And this is what it was all about. Is that Pew had asked this question of 35,000 respondents, have you in the last week felt a strong sense of gratitude? And uh, you can see what the number is, because I made a big headline there. 78% of Americans say they feel strongly grateful on a weekly basis. And the rest of these, uh, this complicated little chart here is breaking out that 78% according to religious families. The red lines are Christian groups, and boy, all of them are really high, um, over 76% um, 
of people in these different Christian families feel grateful. Non-Christian faiths, uh, mostly in the 70% ranges. And then even people who are unaffiliated, atheists, agnostics, nothing in particular, religion is not, it is not important in my life, or religion is important in my life. And all these folks uh, share this answer to this question. Um, everywhere I speak, in mainline churches, there's always somebody who does a lot of work with data, a sociologist, somebody who is a social scientist of some sort, and uh, even maybe someone who sort of likes data uh, vocationally. And so for those of you who are here, you'll probably notice the same thing I noticed, is that 78% is an enormously high number. It is very hard on any survey about anything to get Americans at a number over 65%. And so basically, here's a survey that says eight out of 10 of us feel strongly grateful on a weekly basis. Now, I had two responses to this. One was, it's not me. I thought I might have been in the 22% uh, the week before. I don't know that I would have said yes. And two was, how is this possible? And wow, that's actually pretty fantastic. Because um, I was vaguely aware when I started this project of stuff like this. You know, any of us just kind of walking by uh, the checkout counter in the grocery store or bookstore or whatever. So we always are seeing uh, magazines, etc., with stories about gratitude on the front. Um, Oprah, who I kind of love and I really wish she'd have me on her show. I'd be so grateful. <laughs> um, Oprah does a gratitude issue uh, usually once a year, mostly the November issue. Uh, this issue, I happen to quote in the book because I quote this interview that she did with Ellie Wiesel, which is one of the best interviews I've ever read um, with Ellie Wiesel. And uh, so this is pretty typical stuff. I think most of us have heard that little phrase, have an attitude of gratitude, or gratitude is good, or you know, something, something to that effect. So this is kind of a, a, a happy subject, and it's one that often occupies uh, people's attention who are interested in health and wellness and sort of uh, more, even more generic forms of spirituality. So I kind of knew that, so neat, you know, eight out of 10 of us, isn't that fun? I was born in 1959, I still say words like neat and groovy. And uh, so uh, here we have, this is a wonderful thing. Eight out of 10 of us feel grateful and gratitude is good. It's uh, good for us as individuals, good for us in a lot of different ways. So I started in the project thinking about this, about gratitude being good. And uh, very quickly, I started noticing not just the Oprah kinds of stories, but these other kinds of um, really very serious stories that show up in newspapers. You might see something like this on a television you know, show, some sort of news show that's having a special segment, certainly on PBS. Uh, this particular story was from the Washington Post, uh, February 19th, a couple years ago, and you can see what it is. Can gratitude help you recover from a heart attack? And the answer is yes. And not only yes, but gratitude can help with not only heart attacks, 
but any kind of um, health crisis. So if you get a frightening diagnosis and you're a grateful person, you're more likely to have a good outcome. I always like to say, unless you die. So. But uh, <laughs> this is an interesting uh, sort of thread in our culture right now. And the first time I ever showed this slide was in an Episcopal church in Tucson, Arizona. And um, when I pulled it up and I started talking about it, this gentleman who was clearly in his mid to late 70s hopped up out of the pew. Okay, now we're talking about Episcopalians here. So he must have been extremely excited for him to jump up out of a pew. And he raised his hand. He really wanted me to call on him midstream. And uh, he said, um, can, I, can I testify? And I thought, wait a second, did we wander into a Baptist church? Is something wrong here? You know? and, and I said, yes, sir, go ahead. Tell me what you need to say. And he said, I was just in my cardiologist today. And my cardiologist said to do three things. Keep on my diet, make sure I exercise more, and maintain, write a gratitude journal. And so he wanted everybody in his congregation to know this slide was true. And his cardiologist said so. Well, as it turns out, um, gratitude is really good. As uh, the project, as I, as I began deeper research in the project, I got to uh, be in contact with Dr. Robert Emons from the University of California at Davis. And he's, he himself has written a couple of really interesting books on gratitude. He's one of the founders of the discipline of positive psychology, which you can get a PhD in at Davis. Yeah, and I, I see this nice face here. It's like, when I heard that, that was my response too. It's like, why did I get a PhD in church history? Wouldn't it have been so nice to get a PhD in positive psychology? <laughs> Sounds very happy. And uh, he's actually a very nice man. And his specialty area is uh, gratitude and um, happiness and how these two things interrelate. And this slide comes from him. And he, he takes this around in all the events that he does. He shared it with me. And these are the four points in which gratitude is good. Uh, one, oh, this is so amazing. I, uh, Every time I see this slide, it kind of goes deeper inside of me. One, gratitude allows for a celebration of the present. So often, our life's problems come from getting all hung up on the past or being afraid of the future. But people who have good gratitude practices have the capacity to live now, it helps to ground us in the present moment. It's a pretty, pretty amazing capacity. Two, gratitude blocks toxic emotions. Envy, resentment, regret, depression, fear, anxiety. And uh, the further I, I read, um, this... This is a very important point and it is the subject of an enormous amount of scientific studies right now. And one of the things that people who are, work in medical and psychological fields are sort of playing with 
is the idea that different kinds of emotions reside in different parts of our brains. And so these kinds of toxic emotions, the ones that can get out of control very quickly, um, most of those live, according to this research, and, and like any research, there are questions about it and people arguing because scientists love to argue. Um, but it seems to be kind of an emerging consensus that um, these more toxic emotions live in the older, more primal part of our brain. And they were evolutionarily important. So to feel fear was a really important thing in a time when there were no alarms or whatever, and that a tiger might be on a path and kill you when you're on a hunt. Um, it, it's, it's a great, you need to have fear in order to save your life. And so fear, envy, resentment, they all kind of live back here. In this other part of our brain, the front, more evolved part of our brain, live things like compassion, empathy, and gratitude. And what these scientists are, are discovering, the, what, they're, what they're working on, is that if we have gratitude practices, if we have this front part of our brain firing, when fear or envy or resentment or any of those things comes out of our primal brain and it hits gratitude, it slows down the ability for fear to take over our whole head. And instead, you can make other sorts of decisions. Um, a great example of this would be, you know, today, all the the conversations and the trauma and the, you know, what we're, what we're seeing about these shootings that have been going on. You know, if you think about police officers shooting unarmed people. And what's happening, of course, is every one of those cases where a police officer is cleared, it's always the same thing. It's always, I was afraid for my life. And so I'm going to speak in Sacramento in a couple of weeks, and there has been a really... A tragic case of a young black man being shot in the backyard of a house in Sacramento. And what had happened was he was talking on his cell phone in the backyard of his house. And the police got there, and when the police got there, they were expecting a fearful and bad situation. They were expecting a scary young black man with something in his hand in the backyard of this, of this house. And so they're already sort of primed, they're thinking, they're thinking fear, and then what happens, of course, is that they see a set of activities and they immediately fly to the most fearful conclusion. And lo and behold, it's not a gun, it's a, it's a cell phone. And, and that's what actually gratitude, compassion, and empathy do, is they give us that extra second, is that we're not just responding out of the fear response, which so quickly takes us over and so quickly causes us to act in the 21st century in tragic ways, that um, this becomes a very significant part of thinking about gratitude, the relationship between fear and gratefulness. Um, I don't know how many of you, uh, I'm assuming a lot of you are members of congregations. 
I work all, all the time with congregations. I've been working a lot this year with Methodist churches, and the Methodists are in this big national conflict about um, whether or not they're going to ordain gay people and whether or not they're going to celebrate uh, same-sex uh, marriages in their churches. And what happens is I walk into a room of Methodists, and the, they are just, I, I, right now I haven't seen people this afraid of anything in a really long time. So I walk into a room, and what's happening is the fear thing has already fired, and it's sort of taking over everything in their brains. And I have to literally work with people for at least an hour or so before they come back to a place where they can have a rational discussion. And that's what fear does to us. It puts us way out there when sometimes we need to be here. And so gratitude helps us get there. Uh, grateful people are more stress resilient. Doesn't mean stress, it's like a magic bullet. Doesn't make stress go away. Just makes you more resilient in the face of it. And finally, gratitude strengthens social ties and self-worth. In other words, if you're a grateful person, you're more likely to have friends. Kind of nice. So, wow. A large majority of Americans, 78%, feel a strong sense of gratitude or thankfulness on a weekly basis. Only 6% of us say that we seldom or never experience these feelings. So that absolutely must mean that Americans are the most present-oriented, least toxically emotive, most stress-resilient, and deeply socially bound people in the entire world. That was pretty much my response too. <laughs> it was like, wait a second, something's going wrong here. I don't quite get this, what's happening? Um, luckily, that same week in November 2015, there was an alternative set of data that presented itself to me. Um, this is a completely different kind of survey from the American Values Survey. Um, and they were trying to figure out what was the emotional complexity of the electorate going into the 2016 elections. And uh, what uh, this survey discerned was not a whole lot of thankfulness. As a matter of fact, they discerned very, very high levels of these three uh, negative emotions. Um, anxiety, fear, um, nostalgia, you might think, well, that's not really a negative emotion. But um, what that means is people in this survey expressed the fact that they thought everything good that will ever happen in America had already happened. And so in other words, it was a kind of a, a romanticized view of the past that was complicated with depression. People were very depressed about the fact that they thought that our best days were behind us. Um, so, so that's what they mean by nostalgia here, and then mistrust, which was caught up in division. Mistrust of each other, mistrust of institutions, and just kind of a general sense of there was no capacity to trust. So, wow. This uh, meant that there is a bit of a problem. And this becomes part of the, the narrative of the book. Um, every time I, I write, a question emerges. 
uh, for me. That becomes the, the sort of the driving question that I have to get at in the project. And this was the driving question, is that I began to sense that there was a gratitude gap. That somehow, what we might experience in our, our personal lives, and I do not discount that high number. I mean, if somebody asked me, you know, did you feel grateful uh, this last week? I might think about someone who did something kind for me, or I might think about somebody who held a door open for me, or maybe helped me with my suitcases when I was flying on an airplane. And so, yeah, I felt grateful. Uh, oftentimes, our senses of gratitude are kind of like that. They're sort of ad hoc and very random, surprising feelings. But what about this other thing? If gratitude is really good for us as individuals, you know, if you can get out of that ad hoc thing and make gratitude more of a way of life, a spiritual practice that deepens uh, your, your capacity uh, for thankfulness, um, if that's true, I began to think of, would it be good for us as a people? Would it be good for our communities, our churches, our, our, our businesses, our small towns, our library groups, whatever? And then finally, would it possibly be a path of thinking about our larger life together? And uh, one of the fascinating questions that I actually get to in the book is whether or not it's possible to have a politics of gratitude. And so, this was my question. And let me just sort of take you to some of the, the, the observations that I have about this in, in the book. And I, I would really like to have a bit of a conversation about it. One of the things that I became convinced um, as I explored this question, what's that gap all about? is that I think sometimes we don't really understand the word grateful or gratitude. Is that we hear the word and we think we're talking about the same thing. Um, but that is actually not very much the experience that I have in life. Uh, one of the biggest problems that my late mother and I had is that my we were always fighting over thank you notes. And so my, my mother had this idea that um, you could not really be a thankful person unless you had a, a certain kind of what I would call mannered framework about how you reply uh, to getting gifts. My mother, uh, amazing person, born in the 1930s, lived in Baltimore City. She was a very gracious and wonderful person with very old-fashioned manners. Now, I was born in 1959, which meant I was growing up in the 1960s and I'm a baby boomer, which of course means I have no manners. Um, <laughs> at least according to my mom's generation. And, um, and so my mom and I were constantly having this conflict about thank you notes. And she literally th thought that I wasn't a very grateful person because I couldn't write notes. But what she didn't know is that I, if I got a gift, I would, I was like, I would feel it so deeply. Uh, there's a picture of me when I was five years old at Christmas hugging a Barbie car in front of a Christmas tree. And you would think that that Barbie car was like a puppy, that I loved it so much. And I can literally look back on that picture and remember how grateful 
I felt that day to get that gift. And that was, you know, getting to be a pretty long time ago now. And what happened was is that my mom and I actually had sort of two different definitions of gratitude that were operative. My mother was thinking about it as this sort of set of, of, of manners and this sort of actions that you take. And I was thinking about it as a set of feelings that you have in response to gifts. And so I always thought that my mom was being kind of cold and my mom thought I was being kind of rude. And we don't really stop and think about that very often. Um, since I've been doing this work in public, as a matter of fact, I've literally had people sort of get angry at me because when I said that I had problems writing thank you notes, it was like, what kind of human being are you? You know, <laughs> it's like, um, you know, we're all human beings. And there are actually a lot of different approaches um, into this, this interesting understanding of gratitude. Is it an action? Is it a feeling? Is it about me as an individual? Is it about being part of a community? What is, what is gratitude anyway? And so, stuff like this. We began pressing into the word. And this is a simple way that people try to define something, a word cloud. You know, you ask, you, you put one word up, big word, gratitude. And you ask people, well, what other words do you think of when you think of, of gratitude? And then people come up with a whole bunch of responses and uh, then you draw up a word cloud. What's fascinating about this word cloud is that this word cloud looks like a Hallmark card. Um, look at all these positive words. Thank you, abundance, um, attitude, thanks, expression, kindness, politeness, thankfulness, recognition, gratefulness, thanksgiving, feeling, uh, giving, uh, there's positivity itself, emotion, uh, love is someplace up there, all kinds of other really nice words. And I looked at this and now I'm feeling just about as bad as I did with the pew chart because I thought, oh my gosh, everybody is seeing this in a, sort of a uniformly positive way. And uh, as a college professor, one of the things that I have always learned to do is look for the outlying words. Don't look for what everybody's saying, but look for what a few people are saying. And so I look for the small words on this, this chart, and lo and behold, there are some uh, that aren't hallmark words. Um, obligation, that's the biggest one you can probably see right there. And then somewhere on this chart, and I always lose it, there's a little, oh, there it is, there it is right there. This little T word right there, it says indebted. Yeah, oh my goodness. Well, it turns out that Americans often think about gratitude in terms of indebtedness and obligation. Indeed, how often have you maybe gotten a gift or someone done something nice for you and you said, I'm in your debt? or I owe you a debt of gratitude. Perhaps uh, you're more like my grandmother who used to say all the time, don't give me a gift, I don't wanna be in your debt. <laughs> I'll give you a gift, but oh, don't, don't, don't give me a gift. I really don't want a gift. 
And my grandmother grew up in the Depression, and you kind of can get that, you know, where that would come from, is that somehow gifts were associated with handouts, and she felt like she would be in debt to someone who gave her something. Um, this is a very powerful strain of gratitude that we don't really want to talk about. We like the nice part of it, but we don't talk about how powerful um, these two words are. Uh, this is just a, a quote from a friend of mine who's a Methodist minister who at uh, age 38 years old was diagnosed with a really, truly terrible form of cancer, a stage four. And uh, it has rarely ever been cured because it mostly shows up in people who are in their 70s and 80s. And so when someone gets it, they're already uh, somewhat older and they usually die. But Jason got it when he was in his 30s. And so he is a Methodist minister. He's, he's the ultimate amazing good, good guy. Um, he uh, went into the ministry very young, is working at a big church, very great, wonderful, amazing preacher, great Bible study leader, uh, adopted two little boys. He and his wife adopted two little boys from a Guatemalan village where they had gone and done mission work and the parents had died and they took these two little kids out of the orphanage and brought them back to the United States. And, oh, just... They've made this amazing family. And so he's the guy who gets cancer. And uh, his congregation then had to take care of him. And they took care of him for a year while he went through this experimental treatment at the National Institutes of Health for this cancer because the doctors were so excited. Oh my gosh, we have somebody we can experiment on. And you're strong and you're young. So let's see what we can do with you. And it was a brutal course of cancer treatment. Um, at the end, uh, Jason uh, went to see his doctor, and the doctor said, well, we think we cured you. And uh, Jason said, you're kidding. What do I do? And he said, go back to work. And uh, we need to see you once a month for, every, for the rest of your life. Just check up on you. And so, so that's what happened. Uh, this particular sermon... They, they did that to him. They freed him from the cancer treatment, which had, he had the congregation paid for all the extra, extra stuff. You know, can you imagine being in National Institutes of Health uh, thing? The insurance wasn't paying for it. The congregation paid for all of that. They took care of babysitting. They sent them out to dinner. They um, took Jason back and forth to all these different appointments. He has a story about throwing up in a couple of his parishioners' cars after chemotherapy. And so he gets up in the pulpit. The first Sunday he's back at his congregation was the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And this, these are lines from his sermon. He said, I've always been awful at receiving gifts. I hate being in another's debt. I was the guy who kept score, which means I didn't mind you being in my debt. I just didn't want to be in yours. Amazingly honest words from a pastor from a pulpit. And then the rest of the sermon was about how one of the things that he had learned during his illness was that this is not what gratitude is. But instead, what he discovered is that gratitude was about communities giving and receiving 
without any expectation of return. We have a word for that in Christian theology. It's grace. And the root word for grace and gratitude in Latin is the same word. And so Jason very boldly talked about this, this, this cultural attitude that we have, but then that this, this really tragic turn of affairs taught him something different. Um, after I interviewed Jason, I went and I looked online to see what the definition is of debt. And you can see this is from uh, the dictionary that comes up as soon as you Google the word debt. And it says, noun, something, typically money that is owed or due. And the first definition is the state of owing money. And look at this. The second definition is a feeling of gratitude for a service or favor. So this is often the way we see gratitude. A transaction. I give you something and somehow we are bound in some sort of relationship until you discharge your end of the transaction. Now, I don't know about you all, but that's not really what I want gratitude to be all about. Um, as a matter of fact, I really want gratitude to be about something completely different. And guess what? I am in the wrong slideshow. <laughs> Please forgive me. I, it's the same up until that point. And then I looked down and I went, oh my gosh, I have the wrong thing on here. So just take me a second to get over there. Okay, now you're going to see a whole bunch of slides fly past. You're going to go, wow, that looks really kind of interesting. I wonder what that's all about. Look, there's God. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a whole bunch of charts. You can see I work with data all the time with congregations. And here we go. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, <laughs> So I think what happens is, you know, we kind of get caught up in this, this sort of world and we don't really understand what gratitude is. And now here are these very familiar slides and here's this one, okay. Um, so we think of it as a transaction and we also think about it as a uh, hierarchical transaction. Because I remember when I was growing up, I always had the idea that givers had to be rich and receivers are always poor. And so, of course, we also have this sort of um, quip in our language. We say it's better to give than to receive. But, you know, wait a second. Is this always how it is? Is it a transaction? Is it a hierarchy? What, what did Jason learn? Is there something different? And that's what I really began wondering about. Have we carried around inside of us um, a false notion of the structure of gratitude, which actually makes gratitude quite an awkward thing. And that structure is about exchange. 
It's about quid pro quo. It's about the fact that, how many times have you heard somebody say there is no free lunch? Somebody gives you lunch, they expect something in return, no free lunch. Um, and it's about people who are somehow economically or socially superior being benefactors and that beneficiaries and receivers are always on the lower end of the scale. I don't want to live in that kind of gratitude. And I don't think that's the vision of gratitude that comes out in especially biblical traditions. I am 100% convinced at this point that Jesus has something completely different in mind when Jesus talks about gratitude. As a matter of fact, Jesus takes down quid pro quo systems. In Luke 14, it says, um, when you give a lunch or, or, or a banquet, don't invite your, your friends or your rich neighbors or people that you know who can pay you back. But instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, invite the outcast, invite those who cannot pay you back. And there's so much of that in the New Testament. Is Jesus is saying, no, it's not about an exchange. Gifts are free. Don't work for quid pro quo. Don't work for payback. There's a different vision of gratitude. And so that vision, I think, is this. Um, being in a church is a very sort of rich image because, of course, lots of people immediately think of, of communion. But what if we are sort of trapped in, in sort of a mental or cultural universe it sees gratitude primarily as sort of a, a pyramid with a few on the top who have stuff, who give stuff to the rest of us, and then we're in some sort of relationship where we have to give something back. Isn't that, that I, is what Jesus is, is arguing against. Instead, Jesus opens us up to the idea of Thanksgiving being around a table. That, thanks, that gratitude is not an exchange, it's not a hierarchy, but instead it's a circle. It's where people live inside of a universe of abundance, where everyone is seated at a table and everyone is fed. And that we all take our various times of being both giver or receiver, host or guest, and gifts move around rather than in an exchange. Um, I love this picture. This is a wonderful artist, Jan Richardson. She lives in Florida. And you can see here her trying to communicate this idea of a table of Thanksgiving. And um, the people are all different. They come from different walks of life, from all different races and ethnic groups. You can see this is one of my favorite parts of it. Look at this. There's a cat <laughs> at the table. Somebody will usually ask me, where's the dog? Where's the dog? Under the table, of course, because the dog is waiting for everybody to feed the dog right there, going from person to person to person. And, and so it seems like a really simple thing, but it's actually an incredibly radical thing. The more I've talked about this, the more I understand that uh, we are really trapped inside of a universe of quid pro quo, and that gifts actually scare us. 
We like being on the top of the pyramid. But as soon as, like Jason said, we find ourselves in a different part of the pyramid that we're on the receiving end, all of a sudden our worlds get very unsteady. But that's only if we have constructed in our minds that gratitude is a debt or an obligation. If we have the idea that gratitude is a response to gifts, and that every everywhere, all the time, we are constantly surrounded by gifts, that we do not live in a universe of scarcity, but instead we live in the rich, the rich, rich sea of an always gifting God in an always gifted cosmos. That should make us stop and see the world differently. There's nothing to fear with gifts because none of us in this room would be alive if we didn't already have one of them, and that is life. There is no such thing as a giver who is not, first of all, a receiver. When, as Christians, we talk about grace, the definition I remember learning in a church when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, something like that, and I asked somebody, I asked a, a, I'm pretty sure it was a pastor, what does grace mean? The person looked at me and said, free gifts. At the heart of the Christian story is a story about free gifts. And that's what gratitude is always a story about gifts. It's about our response to gifts. And here we live inside of a, of a theological world whose first sort of most important insight is that grace. A universe of free gifts. Um, that's really kind of where I want to stop tonight. Uh, I, ha I have a great time in the book because I take this insight, which is incredibly radical. As a church historian, I went back and I thought to myself, all of the times in church history when somebody really understood what grace was, Francis of Assisi, uh, Martin Luther, John Wesley, Hildegard of Bingen, the people who get grace, who understand that we live in a universe of free gifts, that it is not a universe of scarcity, but it is a universe that is drawn from the ever-creative, constantly giving heart of God, that those people, we look back on all those people as our greatest saints and heroes. I cannot think of anybody in the whole history of Christianity, a theologian, a saint, a person of prayer, a missionary, anybody who lived inside of a universe where they thought that gifts were scarce and that gratitude was a quid pro quo. That in the Bible is the universe of Caesar. But the universe of Jesus, the universe of people who really understand what it means to be following, imitating Jesus, 
is always this other thing. And so in the book, I explore that, and uh, one of my favorite sort of parts of the book is I take um, readers into this question. Um, what does it mean to build, what does it mean to build a larger table? And uh, these two images for me have become very, very mealy, very powerful in my own Christian life, is to move away from the ideas of pyramids and walls and exchanges and move really towards something that I always have known. I mean, I've been an Episcopalian for how many years now? 40 some, 45 years. And we always talk table, 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 table. Um, but I just wanna be here with you tonight and testify. It's really, it is table, 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 table. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what a life of gratitude is all about. And uh, that's really the, the, the heart of the book. What does it mean to build a table of gratitude in our own life? And what does it mean to be a, build a table of gratitude um, in the world? So I really appreciate uh, you uh, letting me share a little bit tonight about uh, my problems with gratitude um, and some of the questions and puzzles that grew up um, around uh, gratitude for me. This was not natural, it was not easy. Uh, I have become a gratitude convert. Uh, my daughter's kind of sick of me now. Um, <laughs> no, she actually loves it. One of the things that we did as a family while I was working on this book, because I have to live every project that I do. I can never write a book unless I'm actually doing it. And so we set up uh, with our family a little gratitude texting group. And it's because it, um, I, I find uh, writing a gratitude journal kind of a little hard because uh, I'm a writer. And so tell me, tell me, yes, I'm supposed to write something down before I go to bed. No, thank you. I've been writing all day. you know, So it's kind of a bummer for me to write a journal at night. And so I, I came up with this idea of the, the, the gratitude texting group. And so uh, while the main part of the writing was going on every night, I would send a text out to my family and say, what, hey everybody, what are y'all grateful for tonight? And sometimes my husband would just be sitting in the family room and I would be in the bedroom. My daughter was at the University of Virginia. <laughs> and uh, we would start texting to each other um, things that we felt had come into our lives as, as gifts. And it was, it, it, it was revolutionary in certain ways um, in our family's life. And we now have this very rich sort of um, understanding um, as a community, as a family, of, of what gratitude is. And sometimes now, I used to be the one who was always, we have to pray before meal. We have to say grace before meal. And Emma and Richard were looking at me like going, get it over fast. And uh, now sometimes I'll sit down at the dinner and I'm so exhausted and uh, start eating. And Richard will look at me and say, you didn't say grace. And so I'll say, well, where do you find grace today? And he'll start. And so it's, it's been um, a, a quite an amazing and beautiful journey um, as a family. And then it's been very provocative uh, to be people who are trying to live in the world as a family, as individuals, emphasizing gratefulness in these days because the main comment that I get at every event that I do um, and have done the last year is people saying, I don't feel very grateful right now. Because this is not a time in our culture that is actually 
cultivating great feelings of gratitude and hardly anybody. What does it mean to live in a countercultural way, in a culture that is demanding us to be afraid when gratitude blocks it? That's why it's subversive. So thank you very much. I'm happy to take a few questions. We have like five or seven minutes. I'm happy to take any responses. Oh, I do. Yes. love that image too and um, uh, in a much longer sort of day-long kind of retreat workshop that I do with this I have a contrasting picture with hands so I have the hand of the the woman who's giving the money to the poor person but then I have another uh, picture of people who are literally in a circle of hands and um, how it's so startling to go from this image to this kind of image with all those hands and, and uh, giving with no expectation of return. It's like we get a gift and our response is to just keep giving. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's very different than what we're taught, but we need to be taught new. Um, any other comments or, or questions? Yes. show up in the oddest and most unexpected places. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Thank you. 
Yeah, and if we take it out of the hierarchical thing, it's like, oh, it's much more natural to be able to do that because we're not on just the, you know, sort of the, the other end where we feel awkwardness. But if, imagine just sitting at a table and passing food around. You know, do you feel awkward when somebody gives you the potatoes? You know, <laughs> no, you're just, you're, you're just receiving. And so I think that the more we can get this out of a, hierarchical exchange and the more we can kind of put it around the table, the more natural we feel in both roles um, as both either giver or receiver. So thank you. I think that's something that many people share. Um, thank you for your attention tonight. Tomorrow I'm going to actually preach on how um, a very interesting and very surprising encounter happens around gratitude in the New Testament. And um, it's not, it's, it's, it's a story that you don't expect it to show up. So I hope that many of you will be there and um, I will uh, bring my very best uh, talking about Caesar and scarcity and Jesus and abundance and uh, what happens when we accept that gift of abundance from Jesus. So thank you. Thank you.